Hello and welcome to an episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is July 16th, 2020. I am joined by Rachel Washburn, Peter Chair, Major General K.K. Chin, and Lieutenant General Bob Walsh. The topic for today's discussion is China. The Academy Securities Geopolitical Intelligence Group has always focused on China as they are our strategic competitor. Specific topics in today's conversation include the rejection of China's maritime claims by the United States. We talk about how the U.S. network of allies impacts this situation. We also discuss how tariffs, trade deal, 5G technology, COVID-19, and the fact that China is our biggest trade partner complicates these issues. A few other topics we discuss is China's perspective and interaction with Hong Kong and Taiwan, as well as the increased U.S. naval presence in the region. As you can see, we have much to discuss, so I'm going to turn it over to Rachel. General Walsh, General Chin, and Peter Chur, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, We're really excited to give a quick update on the events in the South China Sea. Um, Now that the administration has, in no uncertain terms, rejected China's uh, territorial claims in the South China Sea, their militaristic um, advancing in that region, we definitely wanted to provide a quick update to our clients and partners. Um, Let's go ahead and just lay the framework with um, a a two-part question. What exactly does it mean that the U.S. rejects uh, most of China's maritime claims in the South China Sea? And importantly, and to take a few steps back, why is it a problem that China is um, laying claims to this uh, region and militarizing within the South China Sea? Um, General Walsh, I'll take it uh, to you first. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Rachel, for pulling this together. and glad to be on the line with... uh with um, Peter and also uh, uh, General Chin. Um, I think, you know, looking at the big picture, I'll address the first part is, uh, you know, why we're rejecting this. The big picture, I think, is if you look at things, uh, really since World War II, the U.S. has led the international order, you know, around the globe, and particularly out in the Pacific, with what's been going on in settling disputes. Uh, and, and that's been done without using force. That's generally the way the Western order, normal way of doing business has been. And China's actions really are, um, are just operating against how that is in the South China Sea and also in the East China Sea. And they're kind of challenging that principle. We've seen the same sort of thing with Russia in the Crimea in Eastern uh, Ukraine. And I think the, uh, the China's geopolitical, you know, ambition there is really uh, to push the U.S. out of Asia as a major power. And we're starting to see the clash of this great power competition that's been described in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy is this clash of these two powers, China rising and the, and the U.S. being a dominant power already. So this is a big diplomatic move that the U.S. has made. It strengthens U.S. policy and others would argue it's moving us somewhat more towards a Cold War um, scenario that we had in the past, though this one is much completely different than the one we had with the uh, Soviet Union. But the importance of this is it rejects really any of the claims that China has made uh, as being completely unlawful, which was based up based off of international law, a decision made in 2016 by the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration, um, and the U.S. is calling out on that and is not going to let China claim 
the South China Sea as its own. General Chen, anything to add? And, um, and importantly, how is this going to impact our allies in the region? We recently saw Australia asked for um, an increased uh, defense budget. We are trading uh, new naval technology with Taiwan. Um, really, what are your thoughts on uh, the situation at large? And then importantly, how is it impacting our allies in the region? Thanks for the question, Rachel, uh, and insightful uh, comments also, uh, General Walsh. Uh, to add on a little bit to, uh, to General Walsh's comments, uh, China's claim in the South China Sea is based on them not being a signatory of the World War II peace treaty, hence their historical claim of the Nine Dash Line. As we're observing, this does not sit well with nations that disagree with China's Nine Dash Line. Uh, claim, you know, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Brunei. With that kind of understanding of the regional strategic environment from, from, from a global strategic perspective, the U.S. is the counterbalance in the region. But in reality, due to time and space realities, as General Dunford, our chairman, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, it's our network of allies and partners that are, are our strategic center of gravity. Uh, and, you know, relationships are important. And as a coalition, uh, working together, we could provide better unity of purpose, uh, improve our deterrent capabilities to defend the rules-based order. It also expands our access to our air and seaports and forward bases. And it helps us with this distance and, and time challenge uh, that, that, that we have. I, I agree completely with everything that uh, General Chin had said there on the allies and partners and how key that is. But I would like to go back and since we didn't really address your second question on, on uh, um, what really is going on there in the militarization of the islands to make sure we kind of discuss that a little bit. So I think the important thing here is is to look at, as General Chen mentioned, that we've got this nine dash line that uh, China has brought out and said that that really has, in essence, really made the South China Sea all of uh, China's you know domain and control. And what we're kind of seeing there is um, really what we saw with the Russians is kind of a gray zone com conflict type of thing. Gray zone being never operating towards the full go into conflict or war, but they claim the South China Sea is themselves. Um, they build these artificial islands, they militarize them, and then they're able to flex their muscles. So it's slowly over time, just as we've seen Russia do, you know, in Eastern Europe, they start to slice and dice and form their own strategy. And over time, things seem to change. And if you look at what's gone on there in the uh, um, South China Sea, there's now at least four airstrips that they've developed on these artificial reefs that they've claimed as their own. They've got aircraft on there, they've moved missiles on there, they've got jammers on there. And when you roll things back to 2015, you'd have to remember President Xi, when he was in the Rose Garden at the White House, uh, said that they were not going to militarize these. And so now they've developed these into what other people have called as unsinkable aircraft carriers. So it kind of goes back to this classic uh, anti-access area denial strategy, as General Chin talked about General Dunford, General Dunford said that, that that's exactly what they're doing is a classic A2 anti-access air denial strategy. And if you just kind of look at, we're starting to use these bases now as bases for harassment, uh, both maritime commerce, 
you know, national fishing rights, mineral exploitation in the area. And so you can see this and you kind of look at things like there's a place out there called James Shoal. James Shoal is only 50 miles uh, from Malaysia and it's a thousand miles from China. But China's claiming that as part of inside their nine dash line. So you could see how this militarization of these artificial islands that they've now, you know, calling as their own is why the United States would like to say, stop, we're going to follow international order and we're not going to respect what you claim is your own within that region. Uh, one of the keys also is that really China has no allies in the region. So that's a very critical disadvantage uh, to them, whereas we have many allies and partners uh, in the region that, that we can rely on. Uh, and, and like uh, General Wall said, you know, the, the reclaimed sand islands, one of the keys there is they can also control the airspace via their air defense systems. Uh, and then it becomes potentially China airspace versus international airspace. And then the nine dash line also gives them potentially control of undersea cables and natural resources in the region. But the undersea cables are, are really kind of one of the keys there is that contrary to, I think, a popular opinion of a lot of folks, a lot of our internet and a lot of our messaging actually uh, goes through these undersea cables. Hey, generals, this is uh, Peter Chur. And listening to this conversation, I can't help but wonder, have we been in certainly recent times ever having this level of kind of conversation that seems very antagonistic, yet with our largest, you know, one of our largest trading partners and some who our trade relationships have already, you know, been fraught with some difficulties as we try and negotiate trade deals and tariffs and we look at 5G. And I think after COVID, we're going to look even closer at, you know, the medical industry and what pharmaceuticals and things we are receiving from China. This does seem to me very unprecedented that have we ever really been in this situation where we have such an important trading relationship where we are becoming more and more, you know, at odds globally with? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start, I guess, uh, Peter. That's a, that's a great question. So, you know, if we compare that, when have we been in a situation like this? Uh, I guess you could go back to, you know, Great Britain when we dealt with another power that was trying to control us somewhat back in those days. Certainly the Cold War with the Soviet Union, as General Chin had mentioned, that really nothing like this. This was more of a military competition with the Soviet Union, not as much an economic competition. Um, the unique thing I think that's really occurring, though, with the situation with China was we had really been saying this was economic competition, uh, and it was really all around that. But what General Chin said is right. They're militarizing themselves. They're growing at a tremendous rate that now in the military domain, that now it's becoming both economic and now military. And they're using the military to their advantage to push other countries in the region around. And as we talked about in the past, using that framework of dime, using diplomatic information, the military and economic you know, um, functions of power to be a great power, we're now seeing China not only use their economic prowess, they're starting to also use the military prowess. So though it's different than anything we saw with the Soviet Union, we now are now starting to say it's not all about the economy. Where before it was so much about the economy that we were probably trading some things to China that we normally wouldn't have done from a military standpoint or diplomatic standpoint because we wanted to continue those economic relationships. 
But now to see that if we want to maintain being a democratic global power, it's not all about the economy. And now we're starting to make some decisions on the economic side by pulling away from China in certain areas, like you mentioned, pharmaceuticals, um, microchips is another. A lot of this was happening. It's just that, that the messaging wasn't out there because there wasn't a focus per se on China, right? 17 years ago, we were focused on Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and, and we didn't hear about China. It was, it was mainly economic if we heard anything a, a about China. So I, I think the, the, the warnings have gone out. Uh, you know, S Senator uh, Cruz, uh, Senator Rubio, uh, they, they've all been very vocal about the, the threat of China and that if we're not careful, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, the global currency will be the, the, the yuan versus the U.S. dollar. So those all have, have very critical uh, implications, uh, especially when you, when you talk about the global currency, where currently the global currency is the dollar. Uh, if that were to change down the road to the yuan, which is really what China would like to, to see, you can see where, where the, the economic impacts uh, would be there because now the price of oil <clears throat> wouldn't be in dollars, it'd be in the yuan, and that, that would affect inflation where you could potentially get double inflation like you're seeing uh, in countries like Argentina when the price of oil goes up or uh, goes down. I just wanted to add a couple quick things. Um, I think that all makes sense. I think when you talk about the currency, it's something we need to watch. Um, you know, they are trying to trade oil directly in their currency, gold directly in their currency. The SDR, which is an IMF um, kind of pseudo currency, I guess, for lack of a better word, they become more important than that. They are establishing a larger sovereign debt market, again, kind of growing out and looking more and more like a traditional um, country with a you know, large foreign denominated sovereign debt market. Um, we're seeing that growth everywhere. And I think, again, we saw their influence probably much more in with the WHO throughout this COVID than maybe we'd seen in the past. So I think that's right to say that they are making great strides in this and it's something that, you know, we have to be watchful of and it will affect our ability to conduct business going down the road as we lose maybe that, you know, dollar as the key currency. I think we're a long way from that, but the path does seem to be, you know, set right now that that's a potential. Peter, in light of recent announcements out of the administration, what is your view on how this could impact the trade deal? The, what are the diplomatic and economic concerns from your point of view? Yeah, I think it's going to get very difficult and companies are going to have to make decisions on what we are going to do going forward. I think China will remain a key trading counterparty. Having said that, though, I think people are going to be very, very cautious going forward about tech, um, anything 5G related. And we kind of leaned heavily on the UK not to involve use Huawei. That seems like we've done that. There's clearly a lot of pressure to rebuild a domestic supply chain as we start focusing on you know, our lack of ability to create, you know, to manufacture our own PPP in a timely manner. I think, you know, it became clear that our ability to get a wartime type economy and, you know, it's really a war on the virus was highlighted here. So I think we're going to see a lot of pressure to reestablish things. And then the other thing that ties in with this is, I think, as ESG investing becomes more and more popular, people are going to expand a little bit more even what they think about ESG, and that's environmental, social, and government, or governance investing. 
they'll, they'll, I think they will want to be careful on how companies use their supply chains, what their supply chains look like. So there's going to be a lot of pressure, I think, even where you continue to use China to ensure that their companies are behaving in the way we would expect a domestic company. So there's a lot to go with that. I think it's going to you know, be an issue. I think it's going to survive no matter who wins this election where our relationship with China has changed. And it's going to be a little bit more adversarial on the economic front as we try and retake back some of the things maybe that have gone there in the past. One other thing kind of follow up on that is we've kind of witnessed Hong Kong slipping. I'm not 100% sure that's key to the global economy. But if Hong Kong goes as Taiwan or Taipei is next, how does this play out? Or is there a series of dominoes that could be knocked over that accelerate what China is trying to do economically versus us? Peter, I think that's a really great question. Um, General Chin, do you have any thoughts on that topic? What China's perspective, especially with Hong Kong, is you know their their perspective obviously is that that the people in Hong Kong aren't doing this on their own, that, that this is the fruit of some other country, mainly the, the U.S., that's uh, fomenting these demonstrations. So they kind of view, and the way they pass their policy on it is, is that this is a defensive policy. We, we don't have an aggressive policy because, you know, we, we're always the victim. So we're always defensive by nature and, and are not aggressive. So I, I think it's it's very very interesting when you when you look at it from that perspective uh, and how they justify what they're doing in Hong Kong uh, to to the to their to their people. Obviously, we have a different uh, uh, perspective of that, but but I think we have to really watch what's going on in Hong Kong, uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not the different nations and and maybe even ASEAN. We'll, we'll continue to push. We'll push back because the the only success that we can have in the region uh, is if we we work as a coalition and have some unity of of effort there. The the challenge is that ASEAN is not NATO, and as much as uh, we would like to see ASEAN be NATO, it, it it'll it'll never be be NATO. So so that's one of the challenges I think that we're going to have to have to work around as to how do you push back against China with unity of effort. And the key to that really is that the, the, the nations and countries there have to support each other, much like we saw Vietnam uh, support the, the Philippines. Uh, and then in turn, the Philippines have gone around and, and, and supported uh, uh, Vietnam. But we need to see that on a broader uh, uh, perspective if we expect to have some success uh, pushing back against uh, China in the South China Seas. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Really good uh, answer there by uh, General Chin. I would just say trying to keep these, I think the U.S. has been doing a very good job of keeping the diplomatic side separate from the economic side. So when you take a look at what's going on in the South China Sea, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang, um, we've kept that separate from the economic uh, side of it. But now I think we're starting to see that the two are starting to cause enough friction where um, it's starting to cool further trade negotiations and would argue even walking away from a phase two on, in the, on the path we're on right now. Um, so when the president did sign that very bipartisan Hong Kong Autonomy Act, 
Um, that was really to punish those Chinese officials that brought in this new national security law into Hong Kong and that ended the preferential treatment in Hong Kong. So we kind of drew that line there where you now start to mix some of those economics into the diplomatic side uh, with the crackdown of the Chinese officials into Hong Kong. And now we're starting to see, we just saw, I think it was uh, yesterday or today, that China's reciprocated in targeting more U.S. entities like they targeted Lockheed Martin Corporation for selling arms to Taiwan. So all of this is starting to come together in more of a competition across many of the different leverage, levers of national power. And the economic side now is starting to get drug into this larger uh, two-power jockeying for primacy around the globe. Thanks, sir. That makes a lot of sense. And I am definitely closely watching how it plays out with Taiwan because I think people view that as very independent. And I think that would have a larger economic consequence if we start seeing some of the actions unfold where China tries to drag it more into itself. Um, so that's, I think it's not an area of immediate concern, but it is something I'm watching and trying to keep on my radar screen because I think that would have very serious um, ramifications for the global economy and markets. I think that's a, that's a great comment and, and really, one of the big biggest challenges in the region right now is is the you know the United States of America what what's what's their trust value you know because all the nations in the region all agree that China is a challenge that that's not an issue the the bigger question is you know in this strategic competition between China and the United States where does the United States stand and and where do we sit are we a, a true partner an ally. And, and I think that that's what's going to be very important here as we continue to watch what's going on in in uh, Hong Kong, because Taiwan is clearly watching that um, with very, very close uh, eyes as they observe, uh, you know, how the ASEAN's reacting, how the United States is reacting, how the international community uh, is reacting. Um, to, to what's happening in Hong Kong, because the, the, the thought process is just as you've laid out, Peter, that, okay, well, well, well Taiwan's next. And this is all about the, the Chinese strategy of how do we win without fighting. General Walsh, given the increased naval presence in the region with the two U.S. carrier strike groups, what is your view for potential miscalculation, potential accident, uh, given the increased tension at this time? Yeah, thank you, Rachel, for that question. Uh, the, the tension obviously is rising, and with more military action in the area with the increased tensions, it's certainly going to increase any type of chance for a miscalculation or even an accident uh, as ships drive close to each other or aircraft drive close to each other. We saw that in the past with the P-3 incident with the Chinese fighter many years ago. So that's always going to increase, but I think it's what were the intentions and how will we deal with it? And I think as you look back, the U.S. has a lot of experience with that from dealing with the Soviet Union uh, all the way back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So even though those tensions were would rise and then fall, there was that constant uh, you know, competition, chance for miscalculation. But when they occurred, we knew what to do to be able to have the right diplomatic engagement to ratchet down the, uh, the tensions. So I'm confident that 
with uh, that neither one of us want to go to a hot war in the region that uh, you know the right uh, mentality would prevail in any of those situations but I think there is that chance for it to increase we don't know how China's going to act in a lot of cases over there you know there's a lot of people that look at what's going on in India and they look at a lot of the uh, the Chinese military is hot to prove themselves that they are a, a war fighting you know uh, one of the best war fighting capabilities they've got the technology can they actually use them so there's that fear on that side where we didn't really have it with the Soviet Union who the Russians had been in conflict for many many years so that's a that's one of those question marks we have in dealing with China but I think right now it's kind of like everybody really trying to push back against both sides to show that they can be the dominant force in the region. And certainly, as General Chin said, our goal should be to gain partnerships and allies. I, I do uh, agree with everything uh, uh, General Walsh said there. I, I, I do absolutely look, look at it. When you look at it today, you have to definitely be able to say there's a greater chance today um, of a miscalculation and threat uh, than, than, than before. But I, 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 I agree 100% in that what will happen is that miscalculation will occur potentially, but China is a master at pushing this envelope until the international community condemns their, their action, you know, which time they'll pull back slightly, establish a new normal. They, they've established many new normals in the South China Sea. They're doing that with Hong Kong right now. But they're doing it throughout the region, all underneath the radar uh, of the international community expressing concern over it. Uh, but, but within the region, the countries uh, there that are being affected, they, they have a, a, a major and a big concern about what's happening in the region. And they're really looking towards the, the, the United States to step up and support them. Because in, in, in the big picture, a lot of their military hardware as much as they buy from the U.S., uh, they, they, they really are, are not competitive uh, with China. And they're doing it more for prestige in the region uh, versus actually being defensive and geared towards that interoperability uh, and working with the United States uh, so that we would come to their aid and support uh, if something bad happens in the region with China. You know, one thing I think I'd like to go back and revisit is we've talked a little bit about Huawei, about 5G. We've talked a little bit about um, the Internet. We haven't talked as much maybe about artificial intelligence or some of the other things that are going on with China. How do you view this kind of almost race for technology? Where do we stand in that? Where is it headed? Are we winning? How do we win it? How crucial is it that we win it? What are you seeing in that field, I guess, pretty broadly of future tech. Again, um, and a bunch of, sorry, several of our customers have even mentioned um, China's pushing towards more and more digital currencies. So where do we stand in the new technology and where it's headed in relation to China? I'll go ahead and take a stab at that, uh, Peter. You know, I think um, if you look at where China's been, the technology they've been developing in the past um, has been on the lower end. You know, the things that have been on the higher end uh, is where we've gotten into intellectual property issues, uh, technology theft, and we've been calling them out on that. Um, now we're starting to see them start to develop capabilities that in many cases um, are on par with what we're developing ourselves. 
Uh, certainly on the military side, you can look get into commercial aviation, some of the growth that they've got in there, their desires in the uh, semiconductor area. Um, but as a whole, we had been interconnected a lot between our corporations that have been looking for those short-term gains, but now they are seeing with the same view that the, the national security strategy has had and the, the Trump administration is this competition may not be going in the way that we wanted. And so now you're starting to see after the COVID-19, looking at the pharma industry, looking at the PPE, pulling back from some of those areas. And now this, this um, you know, tech war that's been going on prior to any of the other things that have been going on from you know, a, a developing towards a Cold War, this tech war, as we start to pull apart, we're starting to see the under, underlying ambitions of China to replicate everything they can that we're doing. And now you start to see things like what um, uh, the UK has done with the uh, Huawei decision in 5G, where before that was the US trying to push the UK to go in that direction. We're now seeing the UK go in that direction on their own, you know, by limiting the, um, uh, you know, the, the provi network providers there to not use uh, Huawei and 5G, you know, where before it was just international security structure. We saw just recently India ban 59 apps uh, that were Chinese um, made apps. So all along, you're starting to see more and more countries start to fall in line with this technology competition that we're seeing with China, they're starting to see it the same way that the Trump administration has been preaching for a while, and it early on was out in an island by themselves in many ways, with the exception of some countries like Japan or Australia. Thanks for that, General. This has been a very, you know, almost difficult discussion because here we are and we're clearly at odds and having friction with China, and yet for many of the companies that, you know, are our customers, they have to deal with China both as still a potentially very large and lucrative market. So the potential to sell into China is going to be very important for them. And it remains a huge source of our supply network and will continue to do so. So I think this conversation has been very eye-opening because I think people are really going to have to work hard to make sure that we are continuing to be able to deal with China, that we can have profitable relationships with China, that we can conduct our business while at the same time, I think it's important for people to be aware that there is this growing friction on a geopolitical sense. And I think how companies navigate through this is going to be a crucial part of their success for the next three to five years. And I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic things can get done. Um, but I do think this conversation was hopefully a little bit eye-opening that there's a lot going on that needs to be addressed. And it's going to be difficult for so many of our companies who China is such a large part of their business plan. We started with the South China Sea as our main topic. Um, and as you look at how we try to manage relationships in this competition, a lot of it, what we're seeing with other countries and other partners around the globe is we're willing to work with China. But we have to manage those relationships as they will have to in accordance with global norms. These are the democratic you know, countries around the globe. And those countries, and along with our own U.S. companies, have to look at this relationship with China. But we're starting to see what's taking place in the South China Sea, and we also see it through the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think this is starting to open the eyes of both companies in the U.S. and countries around the globe to take a whole different view, and much more in line with the view that the U.S. has been taking recently.
Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, uh, General Walsh. I, I appreciate it. I, I would only just say one one thing is is what what I think we'll continue to see in the South China Sea is, you know, an increase in this multinational type training, with, with the focus being that 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 we're working together, meaning that we know each other, we're training together, and the big key is there that we trust each other. So then, based on that, the the focus is that. Hey, we'll be successful the next time we work together, whether it's in training or in an actual operation. And that, that I think, is really the key right now in the region is, is how do we continue to build trust with the nations and countries there? Uh, because, as you say, the strength of the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack. So in, the, in this case, that, that's how we're going to uh, be successful against China is bringing all these nations and countries together in a, in a coalition. Thank you everyone for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time. If you have an interest in engaging with our geopolitical intelligence group directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. We appreciate the opportunity to share our geopolitical research with you and look forward to speaking with you again soon.